you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. The quiet fading out of life in a corner full of ugliness. I went looking for magnolia flowers but I didn't find them. I went looking for magnolia flowers in the dusk and there was only this corner full of ugliness. Excuse me, I didn't mean to stomp my toe on you lady. There ought to be magnolias somewhere in this dusk. Excuse me, I didn't mean to stomp my toe on you. You are listening to Magnolia Flowers by Langston Hughes. In today's episode of Airy Healthcare, I had a chat with Stephen Eilward about the case of open source softwares and the lessons that he learned from developing these for his entire life in the medical domain. So welcome to the fifth season of AI Ready Healthcare. I'm your host Anirban together with my co-host Henry. It is really a pleasure to welcome our guest for today, Stephen Alward. Stephen is quite synonymous with open source high quality software development within the Mikai community and also the bigger community who are using medical imaging medical image analysis software products for doing uh, different types of research that builds around this stephen's major successes would include some of the creation of this very widely used popular adapted software framework such as insight toolkit itk vtk 3d slicer and quite a few others currently he is the senior director of strategic initiatives in kitwa and he is also the chair of uh, medical open network for ai advisory board which the short form of this is monai so we will hear about all of these activities that stephen has been doing for the i guess past 30 years roughly so yeah welcome to the podcast stephen thank you very much i really appreciate the opportunity to be here and connecting again with the mekai community hi stephen and also welcome from my side welcome to our AI ready healthcare podcast. I'm also really looking forward to today's discussions, especially because now it's going into a more uh, software development direction, open source software. Yeah, those are topics that personally interest me a lot, especially as a user of 3D slicer and ITK myself. So, yeah, let's just get started with the very first question, which is our kind of traditional question in our podcast about your becoming as yeah the person and the current position where you currently are 
and your journey through academia and through kitware, basically. Sure. Um, and for me, it, it was actually, I had decided very early on that I was interested in computers. This is when I was 10 years old, and so, um, which was back in 1976, when computers were really uh, not all that popular. I, I was definitely the quintessential geek in you know, middle school. And uh, absolutely just fell in love with their capabilities and the fact that you can imagine something and then reduce it to practice. And just that had me enthralled at a very early age. And then I was lucky enough to go to Purdue University and they provided this amazing education that taught the basics of programming and had a strong emphasis in software design, software engineering, and really just how to write code. And so it was, I remember, you know, long nights and early mornings working in the computer lab and everything uh, along those lines. And it, it was a wonderful experience, a wonderful learning experience. And then from there, I went on to Georgia Tech, and that's where I encountered artificial intelligence for the first time. I received my, my master's in AI from Georgia Tech. And then I worked at McDonnell Douglas, um, which is now known as Boeing. I ran the neural network support lab. So I actually did neural networks during you know one of the early phases of neural networks back in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And so I, I was hooked on, on those capabilities that they had. And I was working with the research labs at McDonald Douglas at the time, and I was the only person without a PhD. And it was some wonderful people, and they were very encouraging. And so I left and went to get my PhD then from UNC. And UNC and McDonald Douglas, those two combined, they really taught me that the role of a computer scientist is kind of as a toolsmith. We are able to create tools that are then used by others in order to do amazing things. And so I've always had that attitude that's been pervasive in all that I've done is this idea of creating tools. And again, any tool that we can imagine, we can create. And then having the people with the domain knowledge in, you know, originally it was aircraft manufacturing and Department of Defense applications. And then at UNC, it was within the uh, medical field and working with Steve Pizer and some amazing people there at UNC. And uh, after getting my PhD, I moved directly into then uh, academic position in the radiology department at UNC. And there, that just further emphasized this reality that we were toolsmiths, that we were creating things to help radiologists solve problems and really advance the field of medicine. And I absolutely enjoyed that. It was a realization of what I had begun years and years before. And um, part of that is that enjoyment that I get is the impact that we have. And so impact has just been a theme from that point in my life onward. And that's really then what drew me to open source, because you can build a tool for one person and they'll go off and do great things. But if you do open source right, you're building tools that will end up being used in ways you've never imagined and that persists and so forth. So that ultimate impact, which is really, I think, a lot of reason why people go into academia, that impact is very driving. And, um, and it resulted in me actually getting tenure in the radiology department. I was there nine and a half years at UNC. And then the appeal of open source drew me away and the insight toolkit and that initial development drew me to Gitware. And um, the rest is history. Wonderful. So that's really a great summary and sort of brings into the next question. So I always had this question. I wanted to ask you that why did you not choose the well-trodden academic way of publish or perish and went into the open source, but you sort of answered uh, the why question, I guess, because we can see you, but even those who are not seeing you during the podcast, if they are listening to you from your voice, it's quite clear you are absolutely passionate about making these open source high quality software available for the 
really, really global scale and making a big impact there. So the question, though, uh, that I have in mind is more about if not why, then how. So uh, how did you actually manage to stay in an academic world, got your tenure and do what you love, which is not really considered, I guess, traditionally the most valuable currency in the academic world? Yeah, it is. Um, this is another theme that I've had and in my life and that I really do try to teach and share with others. And it essentially comes down to one of the hardest things that you can do in your life. But one of the most important things that you could do is figure out what you enjoy and then pursue it. All right. And really figuring out what makes you happy. It changes all the time. There's like no one thing that'll do it through your entire life. It's constantly changing. But listening to that voice and taking a critical assessment of that for yourself without all of the societal influences and financial and all the other things that will be pulling at you and figuring out what really makes you happy. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's a really difficult question to keep asking yourself. But once you have that realization and once you accept it and go with it, then you do jumps such as moving from academia into industry. And so for me, it was wonderful support from my wife and uh, from other people around me, Bill Lorenzen and Terry Yu, you know, wonderful conversations with them and Tina Kapoor and, and some of the people in my life who I sought advice and mentorship from. They, they made me comfortable with this decision, but the decision really began with myself and realizing what I enjoyed and what made me happy. And so, and that again, persists throughout my career. And I, one of the things I love about Kitware and kind of this company that's halfway in academia and halfway in industry is the flexibility and the position that I've been able to move through at Kitware. I, I say I've had like five or six different jobs at Kitware. And uh, it's because I'm pursuing my, the different things that I enjoy at different points in my life. And now I'm circling back. I spent, you know, 10 plus hours coding yesterday. And I, you know, I'm back to doing what I love and uh, what I love right now. And because the company is doing really well on its own. So, yeah, that's, that's actually a wonderful, wonderful thing. And gives me personally also some hope that tinkering, or tinkering around with software and maybe also with hardware is something that I can still do in the course of my own career. Uh, <laughs> um, so, I'm curious now about the uh, initial, like initial days of uh, the open source software projects developed at Kitware, because typically the incentive for developing software is to create a commercial product, a proprietary product that can be sold to end customers, and that is where the uh, intellectual property is kept completely proprietary, and you, I don't know, you have a product that just sells, and there's basically no. Um, no real uh, uncertainties there. But I suppose that in developing open source software for commercial purposes, uh, it might be a bit different. So can you maybe elaborate on that on initial difficulties with developing open source software in uh, a commercial environment? Sure. Well, what I learned early on in the development of the Insight Toolkit, so uh, my group at UNC was actually one of the groups that was funded along with Kitware and University of Utah and, and others. 
And one of the groups was also GE, GE Corporate Research and Bill Lorenzen. And so, again, this will be a theme that'll perhaps come up in answers to other questions because he, he really was a mentor and really was an amazing project manager. And he, he was the one who made ITK move forward and succeed as a community. And so I learned a lot from him. But what I realized is, so not only was he providing that leadership from within a company, so that project leadership skill is, is something he had kind of learned and experienced and so forth in the corporate world. But also those corporate users of our open source software were the ones who really found the bugs. They needed it to work. All right. And they they wanted to make certain there was value added. There was good documentation. So when they got new employees and it could get up and running quick and they, they had the expertise and time in order to really dedicate to make it a very viable open source tool. And you know, in academia, you know, I, I was a professor after having worked five years at McDonnell Douglas, where I ran a lab with 27 people in it. And so I knew what it was like to run a business. And so I treated my academic environment as kind of like a business. All right. And, and so those, those lessons learned in the business environment have wonderful contributions to make to the open source world. And so when you write your open source, you should do it with an Apache license, something that not a JIPL license because that scares away the corporate world, right? You need to go ahead and do an Apache license or a BSD or something along those lines in order to really invite those commercial people to use um, what you have. And then you have to really take value in and recognize the value of having massive impact by having this gone out and used in ways that you never imagined. But then you also have to a little bit swallow your pride and realize that there's a people who are using your code out there to make a whole lot of money. And so you have to just, you know, that has to give you that warm, fuzzy feeling on, on the inside as opposed to going for it directly. And so you have to be motivated by that impact. But that impact that you're having, that's what funding agency wants. And so I spend all of my time, 100% of my time almost is funded by grant funded research um, from DARPA, DOD, and NIH. And so R01s and DARPA projects and so forth. And so that gives me the freedom that I have to build this open source. But it also means that um, I have to be attractive to these different funding agencies from any commercial world. And open source allows me to do that because, you know, they're somewhat skeptical at times to fund a commercial group for developing software. You know, they feel that they'll put IP within it, you know, uh, patents and so forth, but they've come comfortable with Kitware and the fact that we won't do that. And so they're happy to fund Kitware just as much and sometimes even more so than the professors who are now very oriented on making that software and making the commercial software and trying to patent their ideas and, and make a go of it. So it's really interesting how even some of these roles between Kitware as a commercial company and academia professors have swapped in some ways. But a little bit more back to your question, it is just important to engage those commercial groups by having appropriate licenses because those commercial groups have a lot to contribute back. So that's lesson number one. And lesson number two, though, is that commercial efforts, you have to really support them in, in turn because they are the ones who really make that happen, really make your code stable and, and broadly applicable and so forth. And so it's, it, it's a two-way street that you have to be uh, dealing with these commercial groups. And I, we need those commercial and proprietary solutions built on top of open source. We don't want them to have to reinvent the wheel, but we want them to make really cool new cars. We'll provide the wheel. And that's a wonderful summary of how, how your initial days were. I guess this is also a valuable insight. What you just said is simply that because you are making open source software doesn't mean you have to work away from the commercial people, but actually 
even in this space you can work closely with commercial people because they can bring a lot of value back to what you are doing in your project as long as you are sort of ticking the right sort of things and you are going in a certain way so i guess another question i had around around your initial days is that how did you find the motivated people who would push forward your vision because i guess the first few employees that you have they have like significantly bigger impact than than the later employees right so how how did that work out for you yeah well you know kitware was already had their office up in new york and they had yeah you know 12 people up there i would say and there the big product was paraview and vtk and by product they were giving them all away for free and uh, but I'll call it products and so that that's what they were doing and so i joined kitware with the development of itk and as that process was going and so they were already like minded and it was will schroder that actually um he was president and ceo at the time and he again mentor you know he was someone who um when we were working on itk every 3 months we would go to the national library of medicine in terry u and on many of those trips will and i would get up early in the morning and go for a jog together i was working at unc at the time while he was doing that and we would talk and we became friends and that's really where i learned from him the power of open source and so he kind of you know baked me from within in order to actually learn what he had already established and so the challenge though has been like you said though educating other people and it's educating those funding agencies that yes it's okay to fund kitware to make open source and we really mean open source you know it is going to be something we release we aren't going to embed patents within it which happens surprisingly often by the way and so where people try to sneak patented code in it's you know it's hardly ever malicious it's code that they're proud of but it really can be very damaging you know to the open source community and so they had to develop that trust in us and that comes from having our employees well educated into what our business model was so that they could then talk with these funding agencies and help them understand that we write this open source software our goal is really to pay our salaries all right and we're not making huge amount of profit in that regard but we're paying ourselves good salaries and we're setting ourselves up for getting that next grant based on that next round of open source software that's the same thing a professor does in academia and uh you know writing your current grant funding is all about getting your next grant funding that same thing drove us and that really required us to uh, embrace this open source and educate the people we work with on really what we meant by open source and we it was it was a difficult education process and it continues on that a lot of people still are skeptical of a commercial company that doesn't file IP and so forth and so the education continues but we were here at the heyday um we were leading the charge but it was the heyday of open source with stallman and other people for the gpl license and then there was a lot of attention given to it but even more so now by the way I think we see even more the impact of open source in the AI field. AI is succeeding because of the wonderful performance that you get out of these deep learning algorithms, but it's also really another component to the success of AI is that it's built on open source software. There it, it is PyTorch being out there, Keras and all of the other toolkits that mm-hmm. TensorFlow and TensorBoard and everything. All of those toolkits being widely available and Archive being a place where you can publish it and have free publications. it really is open source and open science publication data and software all being made freely available within the deep learning field that you know 
is a repetition and a, a buildup of what we tried to do with ITK, but Monai and other open source within the deep learning field, they're actually, um, it's been an amazing realization of that dream. That's really fascinating to see. And in, in the last, I would say, in the last five years, how much progress has been made in terms of open source software and open source software platforms and distribution of new open source packages for relevant tasks and uh, also especially scientific tasks. So uh, what would you say is something that could incentivize more people and maybe also other companies to publish more of their work under open source licenses and to incentivize those companies to engage in the open source community as well? Well, and, and this is, again, this is companies as well as academics, I think, should really embrace this open source. And that's from the grad student to the professor. And that's because of the value added of it. There's always a cost associated with these things, the cost of learning, all right, you know, and adapting your systems to them and so forth. But if you really write high quality open source software um, that is cross-platform, well-documented, tested continuously and so forth, then there's real value added from it. And so then if you have high quality open source software, you can build a product on top of that with, again, not having to reinvent the wheel. Furthermore, if, you know, one of the most expensive things that a company has to do is actually not the initial writing of the software, but it's maintaining the software. So the software development industry is, you know, billions of dollars, but software maintenance industry and the amount of money that goes into maintaining code bases is actually significantly higher. And we have that in spades within the medical field, right? Because anytime that you do a major renovation to your code base, you have to apply for FDA approval again, right? You have to do some submission to them for review. And so you want to make sure you have, when you do that jump up in your software version and so forth, that you are making a real state-of-the-art change. Well, open source provides that foundation, right? That um, is constantly improving because of the communities around it. All of these professors and other companies are contributing back to this foundation. So this foundation is constantly being updated, not only for the latest Mac OS version, but also using the latest deep learning registration technique, right? And so all of these things exist when you're these open source toolkits. And so you as a company or you as a professor, when you go to release that new version, you don't have to take care of the new version of Mac OS. You don't have to go out and try to re-implement this new deep learning registration algorithm. You can easily implement it or apply it to your technique within your product, or else you can come up with your own technique and compare it with that existing open source as a baseline. So it really helps reduce the cost of software maintenance and gives you higher confidence when you go to releasing a new version for FDA approval that it is the best that's out there. So I guess what you mentioned right now about the really development, the initial development versus the maintenance, I thought this is a very clear thing that those who are writing and developing or releasing softwares, they realize it, but not so much the granting agencies because for them, a new thing is far more interesting than just maintaining something that is old. Uh, uh, so yeah, that's really, I think, uh, where your initial remarks about uh, teaching people into this sort of a mindset, I guess evolution rather than revolution is really important. But I guess the other thing I was thinking about when you just mentioned about your initial work with ITK and then now you are working on Monai is simply that 
these are massive long-term software projects. And since you have developed these before, so you know that these are difficult things. And these will take, I don't know, a decade or long of your time, your effort to really maintain that particular level that your name is basically synonymous with. So what are the, let's say, telltale features or driving forces? I don't know, three of these that you look into when you embark on such a massive new journey? Sure. The software has to address a critical problem. And by the way, one, one thing I want to clarify uh, is Mona really began at King's College London and uh, NVIDIA as a collaboration between academia and industry. And so that is, you know, just want to clarify that. I've joined in very early in the process as chairing the advisory board, but, you know, uh, those teams really began the process and, and I'm just helping it along. And, and so your question was, you know, what are the telltale things for deciding whether or not I should pursue a particular new open source domain, new open source uh, toolkit? And it really is what I was saying. It has to solve an important problem. So King's College London, George Kodos and Perna Adagra at NVIDIA, they recognized that there was a variety of different toolkits that were out there for doing deep learning. And all of them had their own strengths and weaknesses. But as a new investigator or someone who wanted to, um, you know, explore deep learning, it created this quandary. You didn't know which ones to go after. And also that you would learn one and maybe implement your method in that, but then you would want to switch to another one in order to get a feature out of that. And so it it really um, was a lot of wasted effort because of multiple wheels, reinventing the wheels within each of these different toolkits. So they began with the problem of how can we unify so that people are spending less time doing the basic stuff can focus on really accelerating the pace of research is what I always say, you know, provide them a foundation that brings everyone together. And so that's what they did. You know, they recognized this problem that we had all of these different toolkits and the field could use some unification. And then they did the next important thing, and that was build a community and see whether or not there was a supportive community. So instead of coming up with a toolkit that competed with Nifty Reg and with all of the different uh, deep learning toolkits that were out there from German Cancer Research Center and everyone like that and, and KitWork, they instead invited all of them to contribute on building this new thing. And so they formed this advisory board. And the goal of the advisory board was to bring all of these people with their domain knowledge together, but also with their code bases and bring all of their code bases together so that you can um, right away have this community that launches from there. So first thing that you have to do is solve a problem. Then there has to be a good community. And then day one, you have to establish good software practices. All right. You have to have people willing to recognize and value documentation, testing, and that's continuous integration testing, writing high quality code and coding for others. So coding in a way that's really extensible, easy to understand. You don't write really complex code. You write code that is easy for people to look at and say, oh, I get it. Code with a consistent coding style so that once they understand one method, they're easy to understand another method within the toolkit. All of these little high quality software practices, you have to have a team of people willing to adopt them and adhere to them. And a lot of that comes from Frankly, you know, Bill Lawrence, and you know, he was a a, a wonderful figure, six foot, whatever, tall, really imposing, super nice guy, though. But he led by example, and he could really steer people along. And so, you have to have, you know, your Pernas and other people 
helping to steer um, Monai along so that it succeeds. And so that those software practices that are done, the community is really inclusive and responsive. And you really do ultimately address that problem that you set out to address. Um, that's actually a very, very good point to connect to my next question. Regarding the unification of different software projects, did that unification also take place on a personal level, like um, on software development practices and interaction with the community? Because if you look at open source software projects in the wild, they are um, maintained in different fashions, like their projects which are just maintained by one single person and then being given up. Then there are software projects with a huge community, with a code of conduct, and with regular meetups and stuff like that, and a kind of development schedule and development paradigm. So I suppose it might be quite difficult to unify such different paradigms. Is that also the goal? Very much so. Well, everything that you just described about the ones with large number of contributors and a community and software practices, you know, that is what everyone should target for. So if the open source software that has one developer that is maintaining it, that's a little scary, all right? So that is, you know, that is, you have to wonder why there's just one developer. Was it not solving an important problem? Did the person not put any effort forth in order to build that community? Or is it such difficult to use code that no one has really adopted it? And, and so you, when we went to engage other people, it was done at a very personal level because those persons um, within these larger toolkits that existed, the German Cancer Research Centers, you know, batch generated and so forth, they really already understood how to build community, how to write good software. And, uh, and so it was easy to integrate with them. Now everyone has different styles and different ways of doing that. And Monai, honestly, it's still continuing to evolve. Um, I mean, we're, we're not at the 1.0 release that's coming. Um, but, but we acknowledge that we're still integrating and still we're, we're still learning best practices. And regretfully, the word best practices is widely accepted, but there is no like best practice. There's the kind of good enough practice, right? And, uh, and so there's a bunch of techniques that you have to recognize that they're all viable ways of doing documentation, for example, or they're all viable ways of coding style. Um, but you really ultimately need to just pick one. And it might not be everyone's favorite, but you got to all stick with one and run with it. And that takes some experiment sometime. And that experimentation is what we've been doing with Monai. But now it's become really quite stable and we're really close to that 1.0 release. Actually, I'm, I'm wondering a bit about how the decisions about best practices, for example, are made and like how people agree on different standards. So is there a sort of democratic process or maybe even a process similar to the process of open source software development, uh, which can also be seen in some projects that changes are, for example, made by pull request and then later on discussed and there are votings or something. Yeah, that is, um, it, it really, regretfully, it comes from kind of setting up policies. All right, I'm not a big fan of policies, but you kind of need a little bit of policy and, and you, you need a little bit of hierarchy. Now, people are looking at metrocracies and various other ways of trying to do this. And I think there's, uh, there's again, no one right answer for how to achieve the standardization. I, and so, but there's the top down and the bottom up in the community and, you know, all the different ways of doing it, essentially. But you have to pick one and you have to declare up front, this is the process that we're going to follow in order to accept changes in, to request modifications and so forth. 
And so whatever political structure you, you care to choose, that is fine. Just make sure that it's clear and transparent. And that is um, probably the most important thing. And then also, you know, it was easy because uh, for Monai, for example, because it's built on top of PyTorch. And so the last thing you want to do is come up with something completely different than PyTorch for your coding style, right? And so you want to make it so that people who are already using PyTorch, a hugely popular package, can easily adopt that and build upon that and, and take advantage. So it's reducing that cost of learning. And so if you're going to come up with a new QT package or JavaScript or whatever, you know, find out what already exists out there and then build upon it. Don't try to come up with something completely new and different if there is really nearby something that's already working. All right. So I guess um, sort of we are coming towards the end of the podcast. And I have a sort of perspective question to you simply because you have been to this sphere of basically the technical research side of Mikai as well as the software development side of uh, uh, of how to, let's say, bring those uh, research and some of it in, into the bigger audience. So from your perspective, if you are looking at the Mikai world and uh, numerous papers getting published by young scientists uh, who are early in their career, how do you really incentivize so that these young researchers also make high quality of open source medical software along with the, uh, let's say, the hard work of publishing in a Mikai level conference. Sure. Yeah. And, and uh, you, you commented on my passion <laughs> early on, right? And so I am very passionate about open source. And I think a lot of it is easier for the people who have a passion, all right, for doing open source software and enjoying that software. And so for a lot of people, it comes naturally. Um, so it just resonates with their value system. And so those people are super lucky. And then the others are the people who kind of have to um, force themselves to do this. And there, that forcing comes from really understanding, <laughs> checking your ego at the door, I guess, and realizing that when you look at what open source software is out there, you're going to find flaws in it, guaranteed. Just like closed source software and Microsoft Word and you know so forth, there is going to be flaws in there. But don't find that flaw and then see like, oh, I would never do that. I'm going to write my own way, right? That is, uh, you, you're actually not realizing how time consuming that can be, all right? And you will enter, you will implement other bugs. You might fix that one, but you'll have your other bugs. Instead, contribute back to open source and realize that it, even in the short term, it's going to cost you more. But in the long term, there's going to be this huge payoff again with this foundation that's constantly being improved with other methods always being added into it and capabilities that you might not think you need initially, but ultimately you'll surprise, you'd be surprised to find out how many filters within ITK you'll end up needing when you thought all you needed was this one. And so it is, uh, you know, really try to keep things in perspective and check your ego at the door in terms of thinking you can always do it better and realize there's a lot of super smart people and a lot of money and time that went into these open source toolkits. And then the other component is realize that, you know, th this is a little bit of a hard conversation to have in that if you look at positions that are out there and um, success within academia and so forth, it really does come from collaboration and it does come from creating things that work and making something work and run within a clinical environment 
it used to be something that an individual could do years ago, right? It, it, you know, if you wanted to do a segmentation technique, it wasn't super demanding. You could come up with a way of doing it, implement it on your own and use that within a clinical environment because you were happy to convert DICOM to nifty and then go with it from there, right? And, and you were working with clinicians and it was a pretty simple clinical environment. But nowadays there are so many moving parts in order to implement a research idea, compare it with a bunch of other techniques that are out there, and then transition into a clinical environment. And if you don't begin day one with a good foundation and think, oh, I'm just going to go ahead and hack together something in Python, you are going to be constantly re-implementing um, that algorithm that you have, or else your comparisons with other techniques is going to be suspect because they won't run on the same platform. Or they were written in C++ and they're multi-threaded while you're stuck with Python. So there really is a lot of value in learning good software practices in academia. There are occasionally those academics who can get away with being purely theoretical and they don't have to reduce their, their stuff to practice. And they have to, all they can do is publish papers and run it on 10 different data sets that they downloaded off the web. And, oh, look, I did great on 10 data sets. Publish me. And, uh, that's going to be a hard row for most people to get tenure. There's not a lot of people who can succeed in that way. What is expected now to getting tenure and succeeding in academia is via those collaborations with all the people and then moving your idea to getting it validated with clinical studies and clinical trials. And that is a lot of software. And so you don't want to have to implement all that yourself. You have to recognize that. And so I strongly recommend that people while in grad school Keep doing your programming. C++ really might not be the AI language, but it is the language of everything else that's out there, right? All of the different communication devices that you'll be working with, DICOM systems and so forth, heavily involved in C++. So keep polishing up on those skills, as well as don't just hack together one big Jupyter notebook, but really look at Python practices and uh, trying to take advantage of those GPU programming and taking advantage of N NVIDIA GPUs. That will make a uh, intractable algorithm suddenly real time. And so, and in a clinical environment, you might be willing to wait overnight for your results to generate for your publication, but a clinician won't. And so really learn those tools while you're in school, all right? And the resources and time is available to learn them. And it will result in a little bit of a delayed publication cycle, but that ultimate publication that you come up with is going to be so much better. There was this wonderful article that was just published out of Polina Galan's group at MIT, and it was called uh, Hyper Ensemble, all right? And what they had come up with was a technique of combining multiple classifiers together, um, multiple deep learning systems together, in order to ultimately perform better than any one single of those, those um, classification systems. And I mean, you know, staple algorithms and a bunch of people have done that. But they did this work using Monarch. And so what they were able to do was pull together a bunch of these different methods. They didn't have to re-implement all of their different experts and their mixture of experts, essentially. They were able to pull all of those from the Monai system, and they were just there a function call away, right? And then they implemented their, their method as a combination of those techniques, all right? And they could compare their methods with all of these other techniques that were already in Monai. That paper, to write that paper, would have taken years if they had tried to do it from scratch. But they were able to come up with a completely new technique, validated on a large collection of data and um, doing that validation in comparison with other techniques because they use that open source. And so, yeah, they had to learn Monai. 
They had to, you know, not implement it themselves and, and they get frustrated with some of the quirks of Monai, just like quirks of any toolkit that are out there. But ultimately it was a great publication. And I guarantee that that publication came out faster. And then the next one will be even faster. And the one after that will be even faster. Again, we're toolsmiths and Monai, ITK, Slicer, VTK. These are all tools and use them in order to um, approach your application domain, get your publication out there. And really you asked about how funding happens for these toolkits and that funding happens from the toolkits you aren't going to be able to apply to NIH and say, please fund my development of this open source toolkit. You know, it's very rare that in the EU or so and so forth that they just fund the development of an open source toolkit, but they will fund a tool that solves a problem. And so you have to clearly describe. So I go asking NIH for funding, not for ITK, VTK development. We do have some of that, but I'm looking at stroke collaterals. I'm looking at point of care ultrasound. I'm looking at chest tomosynthesis, right? Where you have to integrate uh, data really rapidly from multiple projection systems. And all of these challenging clinical problems, those are the grant proposals that I write. And by the way, I'm going to spend my time writing this software so that uh, other people can benefit, so that my publication can be a higher quality publication. And then my next publication comes even easier and easier and easier. Wonderful. So I guess your suggestion is definitely not to think only in terms of publications, even if you are a PI or a early career researcher, but thinking of the semi-longer term benefits of what the project is, where is it heading, how is the translation potential of this into the clinical practice, because that's where the bigger impact is going to come, not at that one Mikai paper you write, but I guess the longer term. You are exactly right. You got to play the long game. You're right. And, and so it is not, don't think of your career as one publication followed by another publication, but it really should be advancing the field. And uh, the publications will fall naturally. Collaborations will fall naturally if you have that software basis for it. And, uh, but yeah, you have to think long game and then check your ego at the door. Those are two things. Yeah, that's I, I forgot about the ego part. That's that's I guess the very Mikai way of me. <laughs> that, that plays a bigger role than the research you do. <laughs> no, but this is really, really wonderful what you mentioned, Stephen. This is uh, absolutely vital to ensure that we we see ourselves as toolsmiths and not the computer scientist around whom the entire clinical world will change because we, <laughs> we can download data from the websites and uh, download some tutorial Python codes and can run neural nets. So that's really, really great advice to, to look at the bigger picture, think of the longer term, and then come up with the most impactful things while uh, realizing that we are the toolsmiths. I'm really glad to get a chance to talk to you today because you brought so many valuable lessons and it's not just lessons from somewhere but for from someone who has practiced these for the last three decades roughly or so and as successful as you are so I guess most of the listeners who are listening to today's podcast they will really, really benefit from your vision and your way of thinking about it. So thank you so much for sharing all this. Well, I really appreciate the kind words and, and very grateful for this opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, on that note, thank you so much. And I really hope you have a wonderful, productive uh, day, hours of more coding in the coming weeks and so on. 
So have a nice time. Have a nice day. And thank you very much. Have a good day. Thank you.